0: war and peace a podcast by the international crisis group welcome back to war and peace a podcast of the international crisis group i'm your host ola oliker speaking to you from brussels
1: and I'm your co-host, Alyssa Jobson, also
0: in Brussels. Today we're talking about the protection of civilians in wartime and the gendered effects of conflict in Ukraine.: Но если на нас будут наступать войска, если у нас попытаются отнять нашу страну, нашу свободу, наши жизни, жизни наших детей, мы будем защищаться. Не наступать, защищаться.:
1: War inevitably has grave consequences for civilian populations. Death, displacement, the destruction of livelihoods and sexual violence are just the tip of the iceberg and all of them affect different groups of people differently, whether that's due to gender, class, geography or other factors. And combatants, of course, face different threats to civilians. Over the years, laws of war have evolved in part in an effort to protect civilians in particular but also to create clear lines of what is and what is not acceptable when it comes to the treatment of combatants. But of course, these are not always followed and international law may only offer recourse, if at all, when the war ends. All of this is playing out in Ukraine in a variety of ways. Women and men, both civilians and combatants, have faced rape and other sexual violence. At the same time, Ukraine's own government treats women and men differently. It has since the start of the war, imposed a travel ban that prevents men aged 18 to 60 from leaving the country. The intention is to keep potential combatants able to fight, but it has also had some unexpected effects, both on the men who cannot leave and the women who can
0: To talk about this, we are excited to welcome Charlie Carpenter to War and Peace. Charlie is a professor at the Department of Political Science and Legal Studies at the University of Massachusetts Amherst, where she leads the Human Security Lab. She has published extensively on topics related to the protection of civilians in conflicts, gender issues, and humanitarian disarmament. She and her team at the Human Security Lab have just published a new report on the impact of the travel ban in Ukraine, entitled Protecting Civilian Men's Right to Flee the Ukraine War, Strategic and Humanitarian Impacts. Charlie, welcome to War and Peace. It's great to be here, Alia.
1: Charlie, you're working for Human Security Lab. Can you tell us a bit about it? What's the idea behind it? What's its purpose? And why is it necessary?
2: Oh, yeah, of course. Um well, Human Security Lab is a research collective at UMass Amherst. Um, we run projects convening academic experts in dialogue with practitioners and stakeholders around human security issues, especially issues that have been difficult uh, for practitioners to focus on or just haven't gotten as much policy attention. Um we try to bring the latest insights from social science to bear on these kinds of problems, and where possible, we also try to do this by gathering representative survey data, not just from global elites or uh, global practitioners, um, but also citizens affected by these kinds of human security problems and policies themselves in places like Ukraine or Taliban-controlled Afghanistan or even in first-world countries affected by decisions states make, like which weapons to keep in their arsenals. So our work is necessary because... We believe that um, human security policy should be evidence-based and also that social scientists have an obligation to ask and answer questions that can be of service to those working for a more just world. And there's often such a gap between how global elites or global publics think about these things and how the civilians who are actually affected by them think and what they want. So uh, we try to capture that gap and, and close that gap.
0: That is super interesting. Um, And I want to come back to some of these gaps. You know, one thing that I've noticed, um, it's become kind of part of the discourse about conflict. And I've actually heard it said, you know, very specifically, women suffer more from war. And I think that can't be right. Um, Men tend to be higher proportion of combatants. So how would you characterize both the different sorts of risks different genders face in armed conflict situations and how that's understood by elites and populations? Um Yeah,
2: certainly there is uh, a set of war scripts or war myths that um, indicate to us and are to some extent reflected in what men and women actually experience, uh, where the effects of war on men and women are presumably very different. But I think what's interesting is that in armed conflicts worldwide, what often happens is that um, these gender binaries harden. Um, and by gender binaries, I mean all kinds of ways of black and white thinking harden in society, us versus them, nation versus state, protector versus protected, uh, civilian versus combatant, et cetera, a uh, traitor versus patriot. And so I think it becomes really difficult for men and women in different ways and uh, to navigate this kind of milieu. And it's especially difficult for men and women who don't fit neatly into those binaries, women who want to fight, men who want to remain in the civilian sector or in caregiving roles, LGBTQ men or women, or those who uh, resist the war, who, who oppose the war effort, or support the war effort but oppose specific war policies, or men or women in partnerships that cross political or ethnic boundaries. So um I think it's always very helpful to look past binaries in order to see what's really going on. That's a big part of the answer to the question of how actual men and women are differentially affected. Um, one of the most gendered binaries in war, of course, is the concept of the civilian combatant divide. Um, and it's funny, the civilian is actually a very gender-neutral concept in international law. It's based just on who is armed and fighting, but it's very easy socially for actors to begin thinking about it once war starts um, and the media portrays it this way, as if the civilian sector is women, children and the elderly, and all the men are fighters once war begins. And there are so many policies and forms of political behaviour that are really based on this assumption, which is not always borne out.
1: Obviously, thinking in these binary terms isn't, isn't helpful. But what frameworks are useful when thinking about the protection of civilians?
2: Uh frameworks for thinking about the protection of civilians. Yeah, the usual framework for the protection of civilians, um, and I just mentioned it, is international humanitarian law. So it's the Geneva Conventions, the Hague Conventions. So this is a set of treaties that governs what belligerents can do to foreign civilians during battle operations or in occupied areas in war. Um, I think that's a very helpful framework. I think that what often gets forgotten, though, is that sometimes it's the actions of states toward their own civilians in time of war that can also pose important risks to their rights and freedoms. Um, so if you throw war resistors or political dissidents in prison, or if you clamp down on media freedom or start conscripting civilians forcibly, turning them into combatants without allowing a right of conscientious objection, for example. So we saw a lot of these kinds of violations domestically in the U.S., for example, during the War on Terror, human rights violations against America's own Muslim population. So these aren't war crimes. These kinds of acts are not really governed by the laws of war per se, but they are governed by human rights law. And they often get much worse in time of war. And I think what can happen is a lot of human rights groups will start focusing on a humanitarian law framework once there's a situation of armed conflict, which means they're really focused on what the parties are doing to each other's civilians, and sometimes sort of forget how the policies of each belligerent impact their own population as well in the rush to document war crimes. So another problem is that under human rights law, some rules can actually be derogated in time of war when it's strictly necessary. And the law is a bit fuzzy on what constitutes strict necessity. So I think it's too easy to give particularly governments who are fighting a just war like Ukraine right now is fighting for its territorial integrity. There can be a temptation to give them a pass or the benefit of doubt on policies that could actually harm their own civilians. I think the good news is that for a lot of advocates of civilian protection in armed conflicts, they don't necessarily limit themselves to what the law strictly requires. Uh, NGOs have a really good track record of focusing on what's normatively required, what's morally necessary, and really pushing states to go above and beyond the law. Sort of, there NGOs like Human Rights Watch and the Center for Civilians in Conflict. They're actually quite good at noticing gaps in the codified laws and just making strong arguments about what the norms and policies should be. And states are often really responsive to those concerns. The issue of cluster munitions in, right now in Ukraine, for example, uh, neither Russia nor Ukraine nor the U.S. are technically bound by the treaty banning these weapons, but human rights groups are still saying don't use them. They're bad for civilians. They're bad for your own troops. They're generally just indiscriminate. And we see Ukraine pledging to look very closely at that, for example.
1: And can you say what some of the best practices and worst practices are for governments and policymakers and NGOs when it comes to ensuring the protection of civilians during a time of war?
2: Yeah, I mean, a best practice is to remember that protecting civilians is everyone's responsibility, regardless of what side of war you're on. Whether you're the aggressor or the aggressed, I think it's easy for policymakers to pay much more attention to what's being done to them than to what they're doing to them themselves, to foreign civilians or even their own civilians. And the role of human rights watchdogs is to try to hold both parties to a conflict to the same standard, even if the responsibility for starting the conflict lies with more, more, more with one than the other. At least that's the humanitarian law idea. So our best practice is for the governments who want to follow the rules to listen to the watchdogs, be responsive instead of defensive. If something is called out, try to make adjustments because nations, they do make mistakes in time of war, even without meaning to. And the, the watchdogs should, in theory, be providing helpful feedback as much as naming and shaming. And I think Ukraine has mostly been really good at this, really responsive um, when nudged. Um Russia, much less so, <laughs> as we've seen. As for not-so-great practices, well, one of the practices I'd like to see less of, which I think watchdogs and the media and observers as well as conflict actors fall into, is this equation of the civilian population with women and children. I think this practice persists because it resonates with a lot of audiences. But uh, research shows it's really misleading. P- practitioners know this, and it can actually put civilian men at risk, which then puts women
0: and children also at risk. Can you talk about uh, how it puts civilian men at higher risk? Oh, well, for example,
2: we know that civilian men are much more likely to be massacred in armed conflicts, uh, both international wars and civil wars. They are the likeliest to be taken aside and shot. And we saw this in Bucha. Um, the reason that they are likely that, that massacre is often gender specific um is because men are assumed not to be civilians at all. They're assumed to be fighters by the belligerents. And it's not just Russia, it's not just um Mladic at Srebrenica. The US itself has also had sort of gendered um targeting practices in its war and terror, with with drone strikes, for example. So there's there's often an assumption that if you're a military age man in a conflict zone, that's really all we need to know about you and it makes you a legitimate target. That's the most basic example of how men can be particularly at risk from this misnomer, and you can end up hitting civilians by the assumption that they are actually combatants. But when you do that, it also harms female civilians. <laughs> they're losing their breadwinners, they're losing their loved ones, they're perhaps forced to flee without um male protectors, etc. There, there are many ways in which these kinds of policies may appear to be differentially harming men, and and they are at one level, and at another level, they harm the entire civilian population. And they run counter to uh, the purpose of the civilian immunity norm, which is really to protect those who are not actively involved in the fighting.
0: So Ukraine's travel ban is kind of the flip side of that, right? It's Ukraine's own government having deemed its men between the ages of 18 and 60, potential combatants and banning them uh, from leaving the country and uh Charlie your new report the human security lab report that just came out um, talks about the surveys that you did in Ukraine uh, over the last uh, over the last year between July of 2022 and June of 2023 You found that 43% of respondents supported the ban uh, the way it was. 27% were opposed. Another 30% thought that there ought to be a better way of doing this. What were some of the arguments that you heard both for and against the travel ban? And why do you think the issue is so divisive for Ukrainians?
2: Thank you. Um, yeah, so this is a perfect example of a law that is based on a gendered assumption about who should be in or out of the civilian sector, which is to say who should be able to access legal protections for civilians, like the right to flee a war zone. Um, so I think it's important to start by pointing out Zelensky, uh, did what any leader might've done. I mean, his country had been invaded and so he declared martial law and, um, took steps to mobilize the population. So this is lawful under international law. And the question is, um, why did he construct a gender-based policy? And the argument for this is, we might need conscripts to fight this existential conflict. Nations do have a right to defend themselves and to conscript both men and women, so long as they're offered a right of conscientious objection. The argument against the travel ban as a way to do this, though, is that as it stands, most of these civilian men are actually not conscripts, and they're not being conscripted. They're civilians. They're not being actually mobilized or trained because they're not really needed. Ukraine has mustered an incredible defense based on its existing reserves, and it has had no problem at all finding volunteers willing to train. In fact, they've turned away a lot of volunteers, including trained foreign volunteers, because Ukrainian men and women are so willing to step up and fight to defend the country. But not all men are able to do that, and not all are needed. So one problem with keeping all these untrained, unarmed men, civilian men in the country is that, as we just discussed, civilian men are often some of war's most vulnerable civilians. They're vulnerable to being targeted for massacre. um, They're vulnerable to the same kinds of other harms as other civilians, bombardment, deprivation, even sexual violence. And as civilians... They have a human right to cross a border and seek asylum from persecution or war. They have a human right to freedom of movement. And all these rights, there's a norm against discriminating on gender. Now, a lawyer for the Zelensky government would say, well, the human rights to freedom of movement in the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, that's a derogable right. It means we can suspend it in a national emergency. And that is true. It's not like torture, which is always banned." Some rights can be suspended in national emergencies, in existential crises. But the rules of derogation are very specific in that treaty. You can only derogate when it's strictly necessary. So we have to ask, if you're not going to recruit, train, and arm these men 18 months into the war, has this really been necessary? Um, and secondly, and this is very important, the ICCPR, that treaty, states that derogations can't be based on things like gender, so the fact that this law targets only men and not all young, able-bodied men and women as well, you know, that is part of the argument against it. Why is it so divisive? Um, in time of war, especially a just war like this one, an existential war, there is always a temptation to want to rally behind the leadership no matter what. So a large proportion of our respondents who checked the button that said they support this policy, when they explained their answer in their open-ended comments, what they were really saying was they just support doing whatever Zelensky says to do. They would say, look, this is the law. It doesn't matter if I agree with it. And so Zelensky has established this rule and stuck by it so far. So anyone who questions it in Ukraine, is there is a risk of being seen as questioning the war effort itself. So in reality, what our survey shows is that most of those who oppose this particular policy are also saying they actually support the war effort. Um, they're not opposing the war. They see this policy as counterproductive. Um, but even most respondents who want to leave say they, they want to be abroad sending money home, supporting refugees, crowdfunding military supply, etc., so this is a conversation where people's attitudes don't fit neatly into the binaries that have been established by the discourse. And that's one reason why it's difficult to talk about and why it's easy to misunderstand one another um, and easy to point fingers. And it's one of the reasons why an anonymous confidential survey where people can express their views and have them analyzed uh, without actually talking to each other can sometimes be the best way to get a sense of what people are really trying to say. Um Yeah. I guess what I'm saying is uh, what our survey shows is the country is more united than it would seem. But this policy itself has created a division in society over who should get to participate, how and at what cost to individuals and to society, if that makes sense.
1: So I want to get to the travel ban itself and what effects that's having and how it's affecting men and women and is it affecting them differently? And what are the effects also for uh, gender and sexual minorities?
2: Yeah. So I think it's important to point out how it's having a similar effect on men and women. Uh, Men and women are equally affected by family separation, by the psychosocial harm, um, by the vulnerability of choosing to remain in the country because they can't flee together. Uh, Men feel very helpless to help. Um, They're stuck. They can't help their country, they feel. If they stay, they can't protect their families if they stay and their families are abroad. Um, They're experiencing deprivation. Um, fear, a sense of discrimination. I've had, uh, Ukrainian men reach out to me saying they feel like a piece of meat. And some of them are risking their lives to cross the border illegally. Women, of course, when they're fleeing, um, separated from their men, they're very vulnerable to trafficking. Um, very, you know, they're dealing with all of the burdens of, of flight and trying to make it abroad without Support of their families, um, and they make an awful choice whether to leave or stay with their loved ones. Transgender women have been often unable to get out if legally viewed as men, and even some of the men with exemptions, like students. Students are supposed to be allowed out, but they're not able to get out because there's such a black market now in fake documents that they aren't believed <laughs> that they're actually permitted out. So this is affecting a lot of civilians, even beyond those um, that it was intended to. Um, I, I think it's important to stress women are harmed by this policy, and just as men are in different ways. Um, I, I was on the Ukrainian border assisting with the refugee crisis early in the war. And one of the examples that got me interested in this problem was a, a preg- nine-months-pregnant woman traveling alone. Um, she had left her husband behind because he couldn't come, but she'd also left her little boy behind, her four-year-old, because she didn't feel she could travel with nine months pregnant with the little boy without her husband. Um She had her baby in Amsterdam. She couldn't get her son and husband out. And so at some point, she went back into the war zone with her infant <laughs> so that the family could be together. And she asked me for help getting back across the border, and it was the weirdest feeling to have rescued this woman and infant from this war and now be sending them back. Um, so it, this is a complicated problem that is putting whole families at risk, Um and I think it, it's important to recognize that. And... um
0: your findings show a higher level of support for the travel ban among men. Um, almost half of respondents, forty-seven percent of the male respondents, but a lower rate among women, forty percent. Uh, why do you think men are more supportive of a ban on their travel than women are?
2: I wouldn't say they're supportive. I mean, the majority of all citizens in the country would like it changed in some way. But but I think it is interesting that women are particularly less likely to support it and more likely to have other ideas. Um, I think there's some reasons for that. One reason is, you know, women are harmed by this policy just as men are. I think women are really sensitive to gender inegalitarian policies because they're often intertwined with policies that disadvantage women. So it's not lost on them that there's a connection between these kind of gender-based restrictions on men and the exclusion of women from the ability and responsibility to serve or from equal opportunity in the armed forces and other male-dominated professions, which maps onto continued discrepancies in caregiving professions, etc. I think women may also just feel better able to speak out against this than men are. They're not the ones who are going to be called cowards or stigmatized if they speak out, where there's a lot of stigma against men in that regard. And we see that sentiment also in our survey data, among those who think the ban should
0: stay in place. The other thing you find uh, in your data is that almost a third of respondents would like to see a different solution. And, you know, one of the things you said that Ukrainian armed forces haven't had trouble recruiting, but you also do hear stories of people getting press ganged, whether that's because somebody in a region is meeting a quota. So what would a different solution look like? Um, And is the Ukrainian government looking into better ways of ensuring they have enough people Mm -hmm. to fight?
2: Yeah, good question. I'm not privy to everything that they might be looking into behind the scenes. Uh, we know that so far, every time the martial law has been renewed, every 90 days, the travel ban on men gets renewed with it. Um Zelensky did respond last summer to a number of citizen petitions uh, in a public statement. He essentially said citizens needed to get in line behind the war effort. Uh, which I think, unfortunately, contributed to sort of a chilling effect on discussion about this inside Ukraine. So we're hoping the report will at least help renew that conversation. Um, this, In the surveys, Ukrainian civilians did say there were lots of other ways to ensure Ukrainians are available without this kind of gender-based rule. So, for example, they say, you know, if you need to hold some of the population back, just don't have it be gender-based. Let it be based on fitness or availability to serve or... Um, For example, let fathers flee with their families um, but um, and keep families together, but hold back both able-bodied men and women who don't have children. Or they say, let everyone leave, but have a re- requirement that you have to provide contact information, keep it updated, and return if you're called up, or then you lose your citizenship. And many Ukrainians say they'd happily return when needed, but until then they'd rather be helping in other ways from abroad. So we're hearing these ideas not just from that 27% who clicked that button, but also from many of those who clicked the other buttons on our survey and then put these kinds of uh, nuances in their open-ended answers.
1: The travel ban, it was in, instigated to, to help the military effort, the war effort. Uh, has it had a positive or possibly even a negative act, um, impact on how the war has been prosecuted, how it is being prosecuted?
2: Mm-hmm. Good question. Um, so I don't think the military has really benefited because they, as I said, they, they have enough volunteers and reservists at the minute to fight this war. And because research shows volunteer armies are actually better for small unit cohesion, military discipline, military effectiveness. Uh, it's just harder to find, train, keep and effectively deploy men and women who are there by force than to recruit them who want to join the fight. But um, our report documents actually some downsides for the war effort from this policy. One of them is that it has really contributed to a black market in illegal crossings at the border. And so policing these crossings really saps the resources of border guards who could otherwise spend their time policing drugs, weapons, other activity at the border. There's the, also the issue of war morale. Our surveys show the majority of the country wants this law changed and that even those who support keeping it in place want to see modifications because they're aware that it kind of undermines Ukraine's ability to differentiate itself from Russia. Uh, and Many of them really want to see Ukraine aligning itself with the West. Uh, a lot of them view this as kind of a, a sort of Soviet-type policy. And so this makes it harder for Ukraine to do that. Um, it's a divisive policy, so it's it's been sort of sowing divisions among Ukrainian society among who leaves and who stays if you have the idea that the only way men can help is if they stay it really undermines the idea that those who go abroad can also support the war um and instead y- you might expand the ways in which everyone could be united in a narrative that of course we all want to volunteer and there are many ways to do that so this policy hasn't has sort of had the opposite result and finally i think i think there's a way in which um we can sort of think about gender as a form of war propaganda that can go both ways. Ukraine has been really careful to present itself internationally and domestically as pro-Western, as human rights minded, as gender egalitarian in a way Russia isn't. You know, they make a big deal of their female fighters. And Ukraine had this really skillful use of appeals to mothers earlier in the war, um, to Russian mothers and the empathetic treatment of young Russian recruits. The problem with a gender-specific travel ban that relies on these old antiquated war scripts um, of women as vulnerable civilians and men as fighters, it kind of negates that more progressive gender and human rights imagery that has until now really animated Ukraine's moral high
0: ground in the war. So, you know, kind of taking a step back again from Ukraine, I'm wondering how sensitive in general governments and populations are to laws of war. I mean, you talked about Ukraine not wanting to be Russia, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. One of the things Russia is known for is not being terribly sensitive to laws of war, though it you know, it, it will say that it's adhering, but then you get evidence that it's not. So and you, your research has said that public opinion can have an impact. So can you talk a little bit about how that actually works?
2: Uh, yeah. Well, the first thing to know <laughs> is that adherence to the laws of war and human rights law shouldn't depend on public opinion. It's a responsibility of governments, no matter what. But some political science research shows that public opinion does matter and can help constrain governments. Um, and in general, publics want to believe their leaders are fighting just wars and fighting them justly. So part of the problem is public opinion itself can sometimes be fickle or easily manipulated or simply uninformed. So for example, we know that public opinion in the West still views women and children as more vulnerable and innocent than men, and this is part of what drives media narratives and makes it easy to look the other way on an issue like this. Uh, what we also know, though, from public opinion survey experiments, like some new research our report cites by Anne Catherine Kraft at University of Oslo, what she finds is that when you show people how men are affected by things they update their preferences. They're capable of a more nuanced view and more nuanced advocacy. And so again, that is part of why we published this report to influence those understandings and that conversation and hopefully these policies.
1: What do you think are the future challenges for strengthening the laws of war and the protection of civilians, particularly in the light of Russia's practices in its war with Ukraine, but also You know, we're seeing the emergence of new AI technologies and weapons. How are they going to impact on uh, the wars of law going forward?
2: Um, There's so much room for improvement in this area. It's a whole cottage industry right now, which I think says something about how far the international community has come already. Yeah, there are efforts by NGOs to put the brakes on weaponized AI by building new rules and efforts to get more states to sign on to rules that have already been negotiated, the Nuclear Ban Treaty, the Cluster Munition Treaty. There's, of course, the question of enforcing rules that states have signed on to already, like Russia's adherence to the Geneva Conventions. The problem isn't they haven't signed the treaty. The problem is they don't follow it. So when it comes to civilian protection... A lot of the problem is that the existing rules are fuzzier than we want them to be. So, for example, it's definitely a war crime to target civilians per se, but the question of how many you can accidentally kill is fuzzier. So a lot of civilian protection work is now focused on getting countries to take that gray area more seriously and f- figure out together what proportionality means there's the whole question of how you regulate who gets to stay in the civilian sector and who has to serve in an armed conflict, what that can and can't be based on. Uh, uh, and, And then the wider question of maintaining and enforcing rules against starting wars in the first place. So there's more than enough challenges and work for the foreseeable future. I think we should just appreciate how far the international community has come in the past few decades, though, in the areas of civilian protection and civilian harm mitigation. It really gives me a lot of hope. Um, and we hope the work of Human Security Lab can contribute to that agenda in productive
0: ways. Shirley, that's a really great note to end this conversation on. Um, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me on. It's been a pleasure.
1: to read more from charlie you can follow her on twitter she's at charlie carpenter and you can read her regular contributions in the world politics review and foreign policy you can also find more about her and her team's research at the human security lab website which is www.humansecuritylab.net that's also where you can find the the new piece that we've been discussing today about the ukrainian travel ban.
0: And to read more of Crisis Group's work on Ukraine, you can check out our website, www.crisisgroup.org. You can also follow Crisis Group and us on Twitter and other forms of social media. Crisis Group is at Crisis Group. Alyssa is at Ilyssa Jobson. And I'm at Olya Uluker.
1: We'd like to thank our producer, Alex Figursky and our coordinator, Heiko Schaub. But our biggest thanks, as always, goes out to you, our listeners. If you have any thoughts or suggestions, do email us at podcasts at crisisgroup.org. You can also leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. And to ensure that you don't miss an episode, don't forget to subscribe to War and Peace if you haven't already. You can find us on all the main podcast platforms. We
0: are approaching our annual summer break, but we do hope you'll tune in in a couple of weeks for the last episode of this season before we do take off for August. Um, we will uh, we'll be in touch with that. But until then, goodbye.
1: Goodbye until next time.